1 Samuel chapter 15, would you find it tonight? 1 Samuel 15, I mentioned to you this morning that on Christmas Eve, uh, Christmas Eve Sunday, uh, having regular service and we're having dinner on the grounds, a Christmas dinner, it's not potluck, uh, it's a traditional Christmas dinner and I know that means something different to everybody, but for me, traditional Christmas dinner is turkey and ham and, and then all of the fixings that go along with that. And so we're going to put that on for the church and everybody that's here and then turn right around, have an afternoon service like we have done uh, several times before. And uh, we need you to sign up. We need to have an idea of how many hams and how many turkeys that we need to get. And uh, I am I'm looking forward to that. And so after the service, if you would go by, there's sign-up sheets in the foyer. And if you would sign up and just kind of give us a little bit of a head count, that'll help us out a whole lot. That's on December the 24th. There's a lot going on over the next couple of months. Dr. David Gibbs is going to be here in a few weeks preaching for us on a Sunday. Look forward to that. And then we got the parades and then all kinds of parties and shindigs going on. And, and uh, we, um, if you're going on a diet, I wouldn't do it now. I just hold off, just hold off. You can just, just hold off for a couple of months and then January make your New Year's resolutions that you'll break in February. It's, it's always worked for me. First Samuel 15 and verse 20. We're jumping right into the middle of the story. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Well, there is so much in that verse right there. The people took, should have been destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. This very familiar story of 1 Samuel 15 King Saul has been ordered by the Lord to utterly destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been the constant enemy of Israel and the Lord had marked them for judgment many hundreds of years prior to this. And so Saul, as the executor of God, leads the men of Israel against this wicked nation, but for some reason he stopped short of fulfilling what God had told him to do and he doesn't fully fulfill the commandment of God. And we really don't know the reason why, but he decided that almost was close enough and he spared the best of the animals and the king alive. It's most likely that he spared the king because it was common in that day for conquering kings to parade the vanquished king as a trophy of war. That would be more humiliating than even death itself. But partial obedience with God is full disobedience. You don't get credit with God for what you've done. 
against what you have not done. There are no merit and demerit system in the will of God. And so Samuel comes to Saul and he makes it clear, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Your rebellion, your stubbornness. And the casual reader may read it for himself and decide it's not really that big of a deal, but what Saul has done is he has blatantly disobeyed the word of God. We can try to analyze his rationale, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. He was told what to do. He didn't do what he was told to do, and he loses his kingdom in the process. It is at this point that God rejects him as the king, and Samuel is dispatched again to Saul to tell him that God has rejected him. And so last week, we, we looked not so much at the story, but we looked at some theological issues that rise up in the story. We, we spent some time on how does a just God order the annihilation of a total people like the Amalekites? And then how does an immutable God change his mind and repent of a previous action? Because the Bible says that God repented that he had made Saul. So with those issues out of the way, we turn now to the story itself. And you are very familiar with this story. And the task that I have tonight is to cover all of chapter 15. And so what I intend to do tonight is there are three great lessons or three great principles in this story that I want to spend some time in giving to you. And the first is that in this story, there is a lesson obviously in rebellion. The Central theme of the story is captured in Samuel's statement again. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Deliberate, defiant disobedience is the definition of rebellion. And Saul's actions gives us the clearest picture, the most definitive picture of what rebellion looks like in the Bible. Proverbs 17 says that an evil man seeketh only Rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. Isaiah 30 and verse number one, woe be to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel but not of me, that cover with a covering but not of my spirit, that they may add to sin. Now I checked my records and back in 2019, I preached from this chapter and I preached on the subject of rebellion. I didn't want to come and repeat that message to you tonight, but I, I will say a couple of things that I said back in 2019 when I preached from this chapter. But when I think about rebellion, rebellion, I want to say first of all that there is a spirit of rebellion. There, there is a spirit that can overtake a person that displays itself in defiance against authority. All of us have some degree of rebellion in our heart to some degree, but there are some people who just seem to, to where, where rebellion is not the, the occasional outburst, it is the normal response. We all have incidents where rebellion rises up in our heart and we have to put it down, but there are some people that it just seems like rebellion is just the common thing. I think that you can detect this in small children. The Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of all children, but there are some children who are more headstrong and stubborn than other children. 
There are some children who are compliant and submissive and sweet and easily taught. But there are some other children who at the earliest ages are sullen and defiant and spiteful and hostile. There are some children who they just want to please you. They want to obey you. I'm watching some parents smile. There are some who, who, who want to be disobeying. They want to be a Solomon. They, they want to be aggressive. We had three children. We had one child that was that way, and I would not name her name, but we had one out of three that was that way. You can usually detect this in a child even before they are two years old. I'm not preaching on child discipline tonight, all right? But there are children who are just born stubborn and they are bent to disobey and you better deal harder with them than you do have to with a compliant child. And when a parent is a weak disciplinarian, then you contribute, you enable the rebellion that is in that child's heart. I believe that the spirit of rebellion can be seen in young people and in teenagers. There are some teenagers that are sweet. They are pleasant. They are a delight to be around with. Not many, but there are some. <laughs> and there are others who are just, they're angry. They are, they're hateful. There are some who say, yes, sir, no, sir. There are others who say, huh, yeah. It's just the way that they are. Why, why is it that some young people, they want to live right and they want to be clean and they, they want to show respect. There are others who are always pushing the envelope and trying to step across the line. Some who have good attitudes and there are some that have bad attitudes and there are some that, 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 that submit when corrected. There are some that rebel when they are corrected. There is a spirit of a rebel. Oh, I think that you can detect it even in adults. There, there, there are some men, they just resent the boss giving out orders. They just buck against all authority. That there are some people who would never cause trouble in any church they go to. There are some people who have caused trouble in every church that they have gone to. They, 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 they don't recognize any headship. There's no authority over them. They have the spirit of a rebel. And all of us tonight, all of us tonight have rebellion in our heart because we are of fallen nature. No child is perfect. No teenager has a perfect heart. We all have a depraved nature. We all have a dark heart. But I'm simply saying that there is a spirit that is more pronounced in some than others. There is a spirit of rebellion. You'll enjoy this. There are some symbols of rebellion. There are. See, rebellion, rebellion is a heart issue, but it doesn't stay in the heart. Rebellion, if left unchecked, will eventually reveal itself. The sheep and the oxen and King Agag, that are the symbols of Saul's heart. That is his way of letting you know that I'm going to do what I want to do. Sparing the oxen and sparing King Agag is his way of saying that nobody is going to control me. In our society, in the culture that we live in, 
The, the, the mantra is that a person can question authority and express himself, and we live in a culture, it's all around us, that glorifies anti-authority sentiments and, and, and encourages resistance against God. It's a culture where, where authorities are rejected and re rebellion always expresses itself in a symbol, in a symbol. Could I give you a few? In our culture, tattoos, piercings, mutilations is a symbol of rebellion. Now, probably most of you in here don't have tattoos and you don't plan to get any. But I do know that there are some in here that you are covered up with tattoos because there was a time when you thought that was a cool thing to do. I, I, know, I know some of you men have, have tattoos, but you didn't get them as a spirit-filled believer. Right? And, and, and not one of you would say that was one of my finer moments in life. But thank God I got saved and the light came on. I do smarter things now than before when I was lost. And, and I think you would appreciate a preacher warning the young people, don't go get a tattoo. It's a symbol is what it is. And it seems that tattoos now are so much more prominent now. And the more bizarre, the, the more extreme. And I mean, I mean, just covering up the entire body and piercings and body mutilations and, 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 and cuttings and, and, and the big stretched out earlobes putting the, the things in their ears and all. And, and, and here's what I would say to you. Here, here's what I say to you. You have no right to do that to your body because your body is the temple of God. You have no more right to go and spray paint my house tonight than you do to have that, to do that to the temple of God. A tattoo is a sign that you've been in the world. It has made an indelible mark upon you and you carry a mark in your body that reminds you of a time that you bowed to peer pressure, a time of rebellion, a time of weariness. And again, thank God, thank God that we've been delivered and we've been saved from that old life and there's not a Christian in here tonight that would say that's a wonderful thing to do. By the way, there's no such thing as a Christian tattoo. It may be a... Christian symbol. It might be a religious symbol, but it doesn't make it a Christian. It's a symbol is what it is. And for some reason, there is an explosion of tattoos in our culture. What's driving this generation to get tattoos? Well, what, do you, what do you think is, is pushing that? Do you know who get tattoos? Hey, 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 listen right here. You know who gets tattoos? Bikers. Grunge. Gangsters. That, that's the people that get tattoos. And it's more than a marking in your flesh. It's a statement of what is in your heart. And now we have young people that are piercing every part of their body. Their ear and their tongue and their nose. I've always wondered if somebody pierces their nose. How, do you take it out when you need to pick your nose? How does that work? That's all, I've always wondered that. Huh? I mean, what do you, it's just things I think, I don't know. I think it's okay for a woman to have her ears pierced and wear earrings and have nice jewelry. Even that can become worldly. I don't know why you need a roll of 12 in your ear and have a chandelier hanging from your ear. 
You, you can tell, you can tell when a girl's trying to be beautiful and when she's just trying to draw attention to the flesh. Is it okay if I preach tonight? But now we have young people that are piercing every part of their body. That is not a mark of a spirit-filled teenager. I'm telling you, it is a mark of the world is what it is. And now, boys, hey, hey, fellas, can I help you tonight? Earrings are not a mark of masculinity. They are effeminate is what they are. When I was a young man, when I was a boy, if you saw a man with an earring, it was always in the left ear, and it meant back then that he was gay. Well, wouldn't it be something if you decided to get an earring and somebody still thought that's what it meant? Huh? Or you got one in the right ear and somebody saw you and he couldn't remember, was it the right ear or the left ear? I'm not really sure, huh? When I see a boy with an earring or a necklace or a pinky ring, I think sissy is what I think. Now you might not be, but I need you to cut down a tree. I need you to get in a fight to prove that you are not, because until then, that's what I'm going to think. And if you have a tattoo, I'm not trying to hurt you. You probably appreciate somebody telling kids, don't do that. Because in our, talk, in our culture, tattoos and body piercings are expressions of rebellion. You don't go get a tattoo right after Jubilee. Spirit-filled revival and God laid it upon your heart to go get a fish on your, no. You do that when you are a rebel is what it is. It's a symbol is what it is. I'll tell you something else that's a symbol of rebellion, and that's dress. It's dress. Clothes say a lot about you. And the way you choose to dress is a statement of what is in your heart. You can tell a prostitute by how she dresses. You can tell a priest by how he dresses. You can tell a businessman by how he dresses. And when a young person raised in a Christian home decides that I don't want this anymore and decides to rebel, I promise you that the dress will change. It will absolutely change as a result of what is in the heart. When you walk through the mall, which I haven't been in the mall in a long, long time, but when you walk through the mall and you see a group of teenagers that are dressed as, as, as dressed all in all black grunge, you don't think there goes a Sunday school class. No, you think there goes a bunch of rebels is what it is. Now here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible doesn't give you a list of things to wear and not wear. It doesn't give you items. This could be in your closet and this cannot be. What it does is it gives you principles. And what we're supposed to do in every area of life is to find a Bible principle. If there's not a precept, then we look for a Bible principle and I use that principle to then guide me in how that I ought to dress. So here's a couple of principles. First of all, modest apparel. Adorned, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. A godly woman will be conscious of how that she dresses. She adorns her body without bringing undue attention to her flesh. Oh, I could give you a hundred examples tonight. But when she's in public, she doesn't wear anything suggestive or seductive or sexy. She has learned how to be beautiful and fashionable and modest all at the same time. Amen. Modest apparel. Tight shirts and blouses are immodest. 
dresses a skirt, so splits it, run up the leg. That's immodest. Unbuttoned blouses that expose the clipping, that's immodest. Amen. See through any things are immodest. Amen. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I'm trying to help. And here's the thing about it. Immodesty may be a matter of not knowing. It also may be a matter of not caring. You may need some change in things in your wardrobe. You may need to change some things in your heart. Modest, modest. I'll tell you another principle that I still believe is in the Bible. I have to check, but I still believe it's in there. And that is that clothing ought to be gender specific. Gender specific. In other words, men are not to dress like women, and women are not to dress like men. And this is where I lose most of you that I haven't lost already. I still believe. I still believe that there are some garments that are designed for a man and there are some garments that are designed for a woman and they should not be crossed. Amen. When I was a boy, well, it was a long time ago, when I was a boy, it was not uncommon for a preacher to preach against a woman wearing pants for this very reason. He said it is a man's garment. That was common preaching and it got a whole lot more amens back then than it does now. Very few preachers preach that anymore. I do. I do. Just, I just, I just, I, I, about every church that I go in and preach, good churches, there's, there's a lot of women sitting there in pants. Because, you know, Deuteronomy 22, 5, it's Old Testament. You know, it doesn't apply. The principle doesn't even apply anymore. Huh? Either at one time it did or it doesn't. And, 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 and by the way, let me help you with something. Boy, I, I, I'm going to stick to my notes so that I don't preach for three hours. But, but let me help you with something. See, we have quit preaching that. Nobody believes that anymore. All right, I understand that. I, I am the dinosaur in that. Here's what happens. This past week, the Doves Award. Do you know what the Doves Award is? That's the awards for the contemporary Christian movement. So the Doves Award had three drag queens, cross-dressers on the, plat on the stage of the devil, the, the Christian, the contemporary Christian music awards. Well, what do we care? Do you know what I mean? If don't play them, well, we can't preach it anymore. That's Old Testament. Clothing ought to be gender specific. And then I tell you, I tell you, I tell you, I tell you the, the principle of testimony. There may be some things that I don't believe is wrong to wear, but I wouldn't wear it because it would hurt my testimony. That's why we said a dress standard at the church. Because I'm trying to guard our testimony. Amen. And every so often I have to get up and clear off a little spot and remind everybody, I don't care what every school in the county does. We're not every school in the county. We're not them. All right? I've asked a thousand times, for girls not to wear their skirts above the knees. I'll have to ask another thousand times. And I thought maybe we ought to get little blankets for the girls so who don't know where their knees are when they sit down to cover them up. Your testimony, well that went over big. Your testimony should matter to you. A matter of testimony. I'm just saying this, this evening that dress is a symbol of rebellion. I'll tell you something else, it's a symbol of rebellion. That's hair. Hair. 1 Corinthians 11 14 Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her. For hair is given her for a covering. Now you take two statements from that. 
a man should not have long hair. A woman should have long hair. It's a glory to her. It's a shame to a man. One of the distinguishing marks of the feminist movement is a woman who cuts her hair like a man. It's a symbol that I can be like a man if I want to be. One of the distinguishing marks of a rebellious teenager is he will let his hair grow out long. Now, it's the only verse in the Bible that I can find that defines how, how long a man's hair length should be, and it doesn't tell you how long. It just says that a man should not have long hair. Why? Because it is a symbol of rebellion. The only long-haired man in the Bible outside of a Nazareth, Nazarite was Absalom. Rebellion, revolution, disobeying his parents, long hair all in one. When a teenager rebels against church, the first thing that he will do is he will grow his hair long. I want to be like the world. I want, don't want to be distinctive as a Christian anymore. So that has to go. So, so how long is too long? Doth nature itself teach you? So if you have the longest hair of any man in the church, I probably would cut it. Your hair is so long that it keeps you from serving in the church, I'd probably cut it. If it gives you a bad testimony before other men, I'd probably cut it. Right. Amen. Symbols. Can I give you another one? Music is a symbol of rebellion. Now, music is another one of those categories where it doesn't give you a list. You can listen to these artists and you can't listen to these artists. You can listen to this genre and you can't listen to this genre. But there are principles to apply. And outside of media and the internet, the greatest influence on a young person's heart right now that's more influential to their walk with God is the music that they listen to. No one rebels listening to classical music. It'll make you want to rebel, but nobody turns to that to rebel in classical music. No, no, they turn. They you do not rebel listening to hymns and scripture songs. No, your music has to change. That's why I'm against rock and roll music. That's why I'm against rap music. That's why I'm against pop music. That's why I'm against country music. Amen. If you want God in your life, you will not listen to music that glorifies adultery and divorce and drunkenness and shacking up. And if you want God in your life, you'll not listen to a long-haired hippie sing to you and seductively dress women. There is nothing pure. There is nothing holy. There is nothing sacred about country music. And since we're getting so close to Christmas, I'll go ahead and say this. If you wouldn't listen to Vince Gill and Brad Paisley and Amy Grant on July, then don't bring them in on December to sing Christmas songs to you. Give your children a little taste of the country music. Amen. In fact, in fact, since I'm here, I might as well be here. Some of you oldsters might as well. It's about time to get rid of Elvis Presley. God help you if you're still listening to that trash. There is not, there is, somebody ought to help me preach tonight. There's not a teenager in here that loves God with all of his heart that listens to Taylor Swift. And since I'm here, I might as well be here. Because God help me if I don't say something about contemporary Christian music. Which I absolutely despise. And I know half of you listen to it. Can't stand the stuff. 
There's a song out right now. It'll never be sung in this church. Good. If it is, it'll only be sung one time. <laughs> it's called The Goodness of God. Popular song, popular song. And to be honest with you, I'd never heard the song, but last night I went onto YouTube and I said, all right, play this song. And I listened to that song. I had no problem with the lyrics of that song. I have been in churches where they sang that song. As far as the lyrics are concerned, it's a decent song. Now, he gets a little crazy, you know, his love is running, I'm running after something or something at the end of it, and it just kind of goes off on the deep end. But, but before it gets to the running part, it's a good song. It's fine, fine, huh? The woman who wrote it's not even orthodox in faith. She don't even believe the Holy Spirit's a person. Listen to all the groups that sing the song. It has that sound, that sound, that breathy, sensual, swallow the microphone, I'm hurting sound. Do you know what I'm talking about? It just has that sound is what it has. Right. What I understand was the number one song of the Dove Awards this year. Number one song of the Dove Awards. Same Dove Awards had the three drag queens. Right there's enough reason to say, I ain't singing that song. I, I don't want to go down a slippery slope. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even want to start that way. And, and you may listen to some music that is not godly and you never realize that it's not very wholesome. You may be a rebel with a rebellious spirit against God, but the music that you listen to, it is gonna put that spirit in you. And when a young person walks away from church, he will always, always change his music. In fact, the music's already changed. It's already changed. Your music is your King Agag. There's a spirit of rebellion. There are symbols of rebellion. There, there's similarity to rebellion. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's a strong statement. It's not saying that rebellion is as bad as witchcraft. It is saying that rebellion is like witchcraft. The Bible strongly condemns witchcraft and sorcery and divinations and fortune-telling and as a mark of the moral degradation of our country, they are promoting witchcraft. TV shows, movies that promote witchcraft, as if there's a good witch. Books that promote how to practice witchcraft. Universities that have courses on witchcraft. You can call into talk radio shows and you can talk to self-acclaimed witches. But witchcraft is demonic is what it is. It is to be controlled by a demonic spirit and to enter into alliance with demonism. It comes from Satan and it opens you up to even darker and deeper forms of, of, of depravity. That's why you ought to be careful of games like Dungeons and Dragons. That's why you ought to be careful of some of those video games that kids watch with all of the violence that could do it to this violence. When you rebel against God, you're opening yourself up to an evil spirit is what you're doing. It's demonic. It is deceitful. Whenever a sorcerer or a magician performs their acts, they suppose they'd be more powerful than anybody else. But the magicians of Egypt could not do everything that Moses could do under the power of God. Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, he deceived many by his false powers and a person that gives themselves over to that spirit, they are deceived by Satan. They are living under a lie is what they're doing. Witchcraft is destructive. 
In the Old Testament, God said, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, to destroy you. So I'm saying that there is a lesson in rebellion in this chapter. Recognize it. See it in your heart. See it in my heart. Humble ourselves before God. Do I have that spirit? Are there symbols in my life that, that I brought in that are King Agags? Am I more deceived by my pride? Am I more like Satan than I am Christ? There's a lesson in rebellion. But then I hasten to say that in this story, there is a lesson in repentance. I imagine the broken heartedness of Samuel he has to come to Saul again to tell him that God has rejected you from being king. In fact, the last statement of verse 11 says, It grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Samuel was, as it were, the pastor of Israel, and there is no preacher with a pastor's heart that ever delights in the kind of message that he has to deliver. I know a pastor right now, he has to exercise church discipline in his church tonight. It has been his constant burden all week long. But Samuel delivers the message, and Saul realizes that he's been found out, and Saul immediately begins to confess his sin before Samuel. We are hopeful that it is a sincere confession. In fact, look if you would in verse number 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. You ought to do a study sometime of all of the men of the Bible who uttered those exact same words. I have sinned. I think that only two of them were sincere when they said it. That was David and the prodigal son. Because a confession is not repentance. Confession comes from the mouth, but repentance comes from the heart. It is one thing to be sorry for the sin. It is another thing to be sorry for the consequences you pay for the sin. And as we listen to Saul, I think we pick up some clues that his repentance is not true repentance. I say, first of all, that true repentance does not blame others. At first, Saul puts on an appearance. I have obeyed the Lord. I have spared the best of oxen to make a sacrifice to the Lord. But Saul knows that he's just playing a game. He's being a hypocrite because he blames the people for, for sparing the best. Look, if you would, in verse number 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. Verse number 21, he says, the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the chief of things which should have been utterly destroyed. In verse number 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And I want to say that as long as you are pointing your finger at somebody else, you've not repented. As long as I can shift blame to somebody, as long as there's one more excuse to hold on to, as long as, as I can bring somebody else up in the conversation, as long as I can say I have an accomplishment, as long as I can say yes but him, there is no repentance in that. True repentance says I don't know about anybody else, I just know about me. And if nobody gets right, I'm getting right. And if nobody comes to the altar, I'm coming to the altar. And if nobody else thinks it's wrong, I was wrong. True repentance doesn't blame others and then true repentance doesn't wait until it is cornered before it confesses. It takes Samuel to point out the bleeding of the oxen and the, or the bleeding of the sheep and the oxen, uh, the, the lowing of the oxen before Saul confesses. And even then he confesses because Samuel has him pinned down. 
And being caught does not invalidate the confession, but it is better when confession is prompted by inward conviction and not outward exposure. When a child comes and confesses to you something that he hasn't been caught at, that is not a time of punishment. That's a time of rejoicing that the Holy Spirit is working in his heart. When he is prompted by something inside, when you become so convicted in your spirit that you must make this right, when nobody else even knows that it is wrong, it gives you an assurance that this comes from God is what it comes from. Then I say true repentance is more concerned with the honor of God than the salvaging of one's reputation. Look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. And turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. Samuel, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. It was such a weak moment for me to listen to those people against me. I, I should have been strong, but I was so weak. Samuel, I'm sorry. Samuel, I, I have sinned, but do we have to make a public show of it? So Samuel, can, can we just deal with this? Can this just be between me and you? Samuel, pray for me. So Samuel, Samuel do, do, we have, do we have to expose this? I, I mean, can we just make a sacrifice and, and celebrate the victory that God has given us and let by God be by, by God? Because Samuel, you know, I've learned my lesson. So Samuel, don't embarrass me in front of the people. True repentance will lay you in the dirt and don't care who is watching. True repentance is not worried about image control. It's not worried about damage control. Not trying to salvage a good name. True repentance weeps and it doesn't care who is watching. It cries out to God and it doesn't care who is listening. When you and I come to God, may we come with an honest heart and a broken spirit because the Bible says, he that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Oh, that we may be moved more by the conviction of our sin than the consequences of our sin. When we come to God, we come for cleansing, not for a cover-up. We're more broken over the broken fellowship with God than we are the lost honor to our name. There's a lesson in repentance. But then in this story, there is a lesson in rejection. Verse 24. Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray, pardon my sin, turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. Thou hast rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected thee from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned about to go away. He laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and has given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. God had before denied Saul a dynasty, but now his kingship in the present is rejected. Samuel turns away from him, and as he goes, Saul reaches out and grabs his coat and rips a piece off, and it becomes a symbol of God rending the kingdom from him. Saul will return to the people and he will go through the motions of worship. It's all about image. It's all about how I appear before the people. 
Now, some people ask if Saul was a believer, and if Saul was a believer, did he lose his salvation? I personally don't believe he was ever a believer. I don't believe that he ever had any faith in God. And what happens is God will allow an evil spirit to overtake him. He'll become nothing but a madman with only one goal in mind, and that is to kill David. We have a long way to go in the life of Saul, but everything from this point on is just self-preservation. I believe that after his first act of disobedience in, in chapter 13, I believe he had a choice to repent. And I believe if he would have repented, that God would have given him a second chance, but not now. Here's what Samuel says. He says, The Lord has rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, giving it to a neighbor of thine that's better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for it's not a man that he should repent. I believe he's saying, Samuel or Saul, the Lord's not going to turn back from his decision. I do not believe that repentance would have been possible for Saul beyond this point because he's crossed a line too far. I don't have it all figured out, but I believe that you can send away the grace of God. I believe there's unsaved people who have rejected Christ and the gospel to the point that the Holy Spirit walks away from them. There are some people that used to feel conviction and never feel conviction anymore. They used to get under the burden of sin, but you can't preach them under the burden of sin any longer. There used to be people that used to want to be saved. They don't want to be saved anymore. Right. They'd be saved. They'd be saved if they'd repent and come to Christ. But outside the Holy Spirit, they're not going to come. Right. And the Holy Spirit's walked away. I believe that's true of some believers. Piano player, come. I preach to people every Sunday who never feel conviction, never get under a burden for sin, don't have any desire to be right with God. There are some people that I preach to that used to weep, used to feel conviction, but now there's a deadness inside. I couldn't preach powerful enough to move some people. Even tonight, there's somebody here that's rejected everything that I've said. There's no preacher going to rebuke your music and your dress, and your spirit. It's nothing anymore to shut out the voice of God. I've got a little bit of religion and that's all that I want. You're as close to God as you want to be and you will not be moved. I believe that you can sit in a church long enough and reject the word of God. That the Holy Spirit will grant you your wish and leave you alone. Spend the rest of your life as a weak, nominal Christian. Never feel conviction. Never go any closer. Never have any victory. Do you know what I want? I want God to speak to me. I was shudder to think that I had rejected some word of God and that the Holy Spirit was grieved over me. I know that I can never lose my salvation, but I don't want to lose his voice. I don't want to lose his touch. I don't want to lose the consciousness of his presence. And I think somebody ought to come to an altar tonight and say, God, speak to me. You tell me anything you want to tell me, and I'll listen. You tell me anything, I'll not argue, I'll do anything you say, but please don't 
quit speaking to me. There's young people in this room tonight. You'll be out of church one day. You cannot sustain any level of Christianity when you never respond to the Word of God, when there is no touch, there's no sense of His presence, there's no moving of the Spirit. You know God, but you know Him barely. He still speaks, but you drown His voice out, and one day He will quit speaking. If you hear Him speak tonight, run. Run toward the voice. The heads about our eyes are closed tonight. It's a lesson in rejection. Rejection. God has rejected you. Oh, I shudder. I shudder to hear those words tonight. If you hear his voice, if you can still hear his voice, run. Run toward that voice. You tell me anything you want to tell me, and I'll do it tonight. But whatever you do tonight, don't quit speaking to me. Don't quit speaking to me.